Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the session, Working Together for Better Preparedness, Developing Cooperative Disaster Networks. Thank you all so much for sticking around. Um, we have kind of a small group, so I would encourage you to kind of gather in the middle, if you wouldn't mind. If you can actually, I'm not sure if you can see, at least kind of move towards the front, please, a little bit. Um, in the interest of trying to hold your attention in this last session, we're hoping that a good portion of this session can actually be devoted to a pretty active discussion. So we'll have a really good amount of time at the end for not only for all of your questions, but for us to put some questions back out to all of you as well and hopefully have a lively conversation. My name is Diani Faiga. I'm the Director of Preservation Services at the Conservation Center for Art and Historic Artifacts in Philadelphia. I'm joined here today by Pat Young, who is Resource Collection Coordinator at the University of Delaware's Disaster Research Center, and Leray Umfleet, who is Supervisor, Education and Outreach Branch at the Office of Archives and History, North Carolina Department of Cultural Resources. For the first part of this session, we are all going to talk to you about collaborative emergency preparedness and response initiatives in our respective states. I'm going to go first, as Pennsylvania's network is the youngest, and really, we're still just getting off the ground. So in a way, I'm very much here for the learning experience as well. I want to hear about all of your success stories, challenges, and ideas. I should also mention that this session is being recorded, so when you do have really great questions and comments at the end, we have a wireless mic that um, we'll need to ask you to speak into. So before I jump into telling you about our network, I'd like to give you a little background about the organization that I work for. Uh, the Conservation Center, or CCAHA, is a nonprofit conservation lab that was founded in 1977. We've grown to actually be the largest nonprofit conservation lab in the country. We have four main facets to what we do. Of course, we have our conservators and our technicians who work on anything and everything paper. So manuscripts, art on paper, books, photographs, wallpaper, papyrus, parchment. As long as it's on paper, they'll treat it. We also have a custom housing and framing department where we use really high quality preservation grade housing and framing materials. We also offer high-end digitization and facsimile work. And finally is my department, Preservation Services. We are the education and outreach arm of the organization. We do trainings and work one-on-one -on -one with institutions to increase their knowledge and give them tools to move their preservation initiatives forward. So a lot of what we do in that is planning, strategic planning, preservation planning, and emergency planning activities. So it's that planning work that's brought me to be here with you today. So with that, I'll jump into things. Um, Although just by your attending this session, I might be kind of preaching to the choir by letting you know that emergency planning and preparedness is vitally important. But I did want to just throw a couple statistics at you um, about, specifically about the state of things in Pennsylvania. Many of you are probably familiar with the Heritage Health Index report from back in 2005. Really great news, they're going to be coming out with another one in 2015, so we'll have some updated information. But um, that report 
almost 10 years ago now, found that 80% of cultural institutions did not have emergency plans with staff trained to carry them out. Um, kind of building on that, in 2009, with funding from IMLS, CCAHA, and partners, uh, surveyed over 2,000 institutions throughout the state of Pennsylvania museums, libraries, archives, historic sites, historical societies. And we, we did our own survey. We asked somewhat similar questions to those that were asked in the Heritage Health Index um, regarding all topics related to preservation. But in terms of emergency planning, we found that 44% um, of institutions in our state had no emergency plan whatsoever. 23% had a plan, but they recognized that it was out of date. 13% said that they were, they had something in the works, but who really knows, that, that can mean a lot of things. And sadly, only 20% of institutions, of these over 2,000 institutions in Pennsylvania, reported that they had a fully up-to-date plan. So when this survey was done in Pennsylvania, about five years after the Heritage Health Index, the numbers still really reflected that national report. Um, one thing that we, we did ask as a bit of follow-up is um, we asked our survey respondents to give us some clues on what they needed. And so respondents to the survey uh, indicated that 70% um, said they needed help in preparing a plan at all. 77% uh, said that they needed training and emergency response. And then 62% said that they needed a risk or security assessment at their institution. So as a direct result of this plan, this, this was funded through um, a Connecting to Collections planning grant. We then got the Connecting to Connect Collections implementation grant where we did a lot of workshops and training throughout the state. And then we got, when, when that concluded, um, we got funding from IMLS to continue just specifically looking at emergency preparedness and response in the, tr in the state. Um, so the project that I'm going to talk to you about today was funded by an IMLS National Leadership Grant. It's called the Pennsylvania Cultural Resiliency Network, or PACERN. Um, it's a, a two-year program, and the aim is to move emergency preparedness forward for cultural institutions in the state of Pennsylvania. We modeled a lot of the project on work that had already been done in Massachusetts, well, in, in a number of states, but we specifically looked at the program in Massachusetts called COSTEP, or the Coordinated Statewide Emergency Preparedness Initiative. COSTEP focuses on four areas, um, relationship building, so connecting staff of cultural organizations with emergency managers and first responders, mitigating hazards, and preparing for response. Those two are fairly self-explanatory, but also looking at sustainability of the networks and the programs. Creating a network is one thing. Sustaining a network is a completely different animal. Once networks are set up, how do we keep them active and how do we keep them viable? And I'm going to talk a lot about that in a minute, specifically in, in reference to some of the um, issues that we've faced through Packern. So you can see these are, these are how we identified our project goals. I'll go into a little more detail on all of these. One big focus of Packern is 
to um, build, facilitate, and strengthen Alliance for Response networks throughout the state. Alliance for Response is an initiative that was started by the Heritage Emergency National Task Force of Heritage Preservation in 2003. And the direct aim of Alliance for Response groups is to connect and build and foster relationships between cultural institutions and the emergency management agencies and first responders. So the lay of the land in Pennsylvania, um, there actually is a really, really strong Alliance for Response network in Pittsburgh. They're, and that's separate from Packern. They, they started on their own. They've done great things <clears throat> in their community. There's a new but really flourishing network in Erie. There had been a great network in Philadelphia, but it's actually lain dormant for a couple years. And then other regions of the state were pretty much starting from scratch. You know, maybe we, we had lists of people that had expressed interest at some point, but we were really, our aim is to really go out in the field and, and help them build these networks. Training programs is also a big component of, of Packern. So um, there are two main programs that we're touring throughout the state. The first one is on emergency planning and preparedness. That's a two-day program that is really focused. The main focus is on the emergency plan itself, so building and implementing a plan. Um, we, at, at the conclusion of Packern, we will have done that workshop in 12 cities throughout Pennsylvania, which is quite a lot. Um, and we're also developing a, a full-day program just on salvage, a hands-on intensive disaster response and recovery program that we're going to be doing in uh, seven cities throughout the state. And then at the culmination of the initiative, we're going to have a full statewide conference, probably in Harrisburg, the capital, to go over some of our, our findings and outcomes. Another really big part of Packern is to develop a volunteer core, or rather three volunteer cores throughout the state. We've broken the state for this, in, in this um, aspect of the project into three regions, Western, Central, and Eastern. So we're going to develop and train teams in each of these regions with representatives on each team from the cultural community and the emergency response and first responder community. Um, we're going to have, for each of these teams, we're going to have one intensive in-person training session in e each region, followed by a series of webinars on very specific topics, such as dealing with insurance, other risk management issues. Um, but this, this is going to be really big. There's going to be an application process, so applicants are going to have to express their commitment Past, experience, or past knowledge or experience with emergency preparedness and response. We're going to be developing some written resources and sharing those online. Um, the resources are going to be aimed at both sides of uh, both communities, both the cultural institutions and emergency responders to get us, again, to get us understanding each other one of the resources that I think is the most exciting that we're going to be sharing is at the culmination of the training for that response team, we're going to share the entire curriculum for that program online. And we really hope that Packern can serve as a model for other states or other regions. Um, we're, you know, we're not going to be 
selfishly hoarding the the resources that we develop through this we want to really try and see if it can work in other areas as well but on a smaller scale we're also going to be writing uh, technical bulletins we're going to be enhancing the um, we have currently on our website a mid-atlantic guide to emergency preparedness where we list vendors and suppliers and experts we're going to be expanding that statewide because really western pennsylvania isn't so much considered part of the mid-atlantic and finally um, and maybe the one of the most long-term impacts we hope of Packern is going to be actually developing an annex to the statewide plan that focuses on cultural collections and cultural institutions. So having written language in the statewide emergency plan on how these agencies are going to deal with our collections. This has been done in several other states, such as Massachusetts and Utah. We're going to have to work really directly with Pima, the, the statewide agency, as well as county emergency management agencies. So why have I been saying so many we're going to's and not so many we have? Um, because we are, are facing some hurdles, some challenges. Um, the first one is that just internally, logistically, we've had a lot of staff transitions. I mention that because I think it's relevant for the field because, I mean, so this is a, was really a two-person project at CCAHA. Myself and my boss were the team. Um, she was the project manager. She went out on maternity leave. Then we actually both got promotions, and I, we haven't rehired for my previous position yet. So it's just, it's the reality of working in a small nonprofit that we're all wearing many, many hats. And I wish there were another day in the week that we could just devote that day to, to Packern, but it's just the reality. Um, another thing, another issue that we've faced is um, when, when we've been trying to go out into these communities of the state that we haven't done quite as much work in. I mean, most of our work in the state has dealt previously with the metropolitan areas of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. So there's a lot more Pennsylvania in between. Um, so going into these somewhat newer territories for us and trying to engage with uh, cultural collection staff in those areas and trying to get them to really get on board from the beginning and take ownership of these, specifically in terms of the Alliance for Response networks. Um, we have not at all had a lack of enthusiasm or understanding in our training sessions when we're going out and we're delivering content and curriculum to the institutions, but in, in going out and saying, we need to build this network in your community and we need representatives in your community to do it. So we're not really sure how much of that is a lack of enthusiasm, lack of understanding, and maybe even a little bit of lack of confidence that um, they, you know, representatives don't really know that, don't really feel empowered yet to, to just take the lead and say, all right, I will be the chair of an Alliance for Response Network in Williamsport. Um, and then finally, engaging with emergency management agencies. I think that that is a really common thread in a lot of 
these statewide or regional initiatives is that the cultural community are all on board, but then trying to figure out the right ways of meeting with the emergency management and first responders. Um, we know that we should be approaching it as a what do you need from us to make your job easier, but figuring out just how to do that can sometimes be a bit more of a challenge. We did have an initial steering committee meeting back last December, so almost a year ago now at this point, where we met with um, state agencies, both in the cultural community, so representatives from the state library, state archives, state museum commission, um, but also from emergency management. And um, it, was a, it was a very fruitful meeting. Um, most of the action items were largely around communication, so figuring out, exchanging contact lists. Emergency management folks don't necessarily know where to go to find out even what the cultural institutions throughout the state are, so they wouldn't necessarily know how to respond. And then also helping to educate the cultural community about the way that emergency preparedness is organized and coordinated throughout the state. We at CCHA had a sense that there are these nine regional task forces, but um, others from, from the cultural community were, were educated in that as well. So we, we know that we have a lot of work to do, um, and what exactly is that? We know, for one thing, that we need to go where the emergency management agents already are. So if we can't rely on just getting them really intrigued and exciting and think, hoping that they'll come to us, um, we have to go to them. We've considered, we found out about how their training is structured, um, and so we are interested in seeing if we can get involved in their training sessions, you know, even just devoting an hour at, at one of their, I believe their quarterly training sessions to talking about the cultural community, or at least distributing information through their networks. And then we also know that we really need to work towards sustainability, and that's been in our minds from square one, but I'm not sure that we've been approaching it with the right balance. Um, we only have the grant funding for a set amount of time, and we don't want to build something that's going to just collapse once that concludes. So we've been approaching this the whole time as something that we're not just going to hold hands on, um, but maybe that has created challenges for us. Maybe we're finding out that folks do need a little more hand-holding in the beginning phase. So there's figuring out how to strike that balance between nurturing and empowering staff to, to do it themselves. But still, we have to foster something that's going to live on by itself. So that's the end of my talk. Um, as I mentioned, we will be taking questions at the end. So please hold your thoughts, and let's hear from Pat. Good morning. I have to ask up front before I get started, because I like to know where everybody's coming from. So just by a show of hands, how many of you have experienced some sort of disaster situation that's impacted 
your community or your museum location or your organization? Oh, uh, maybe about a quarter of the audience. Okay. Um, and how many of you currently have disaster plans for your organization? Ah, not bad. About another quarter. Okay, great. So, um, thank you, Diani, for kicking things off and for setting the tone. Um, as Diani mentioned, I am uh, Pat Young, the Resource Collection Coordinator at the University of Delaware's Disaster Research Center. Um, it's a fascinating position to hold, but that's not what brings me here this morning. Um, what brings me here is my role as the current chair and one of the founding members of the Delaware Disaster Assistance Team, which is a statewide network that serves all of Delaware. Um, and for those of you that aren't familiar with Delaware, it's not in another state, it is a state. Um, however, we're only three counties. We are the second smallest state in the union. So um, we can be kind of an incubator for new ideas and new possibilities. And uh, if it fails in Delaware, there isn't as much at risk. Um, and if it flies in Delaware, it can be tried in larger venues. So we have kind of a unique environment that I think we've... Um, been able to leverage in a lot of different ways, and I'm going to share some of that information with you this morning. So, um, why bother to form networks? Well, would your organization want to face these scenarios alone? A little bit of flooding. A lot of you may have experienced, those of you who've been through a disaster situation, this tends to be one of the more common situations that occur. Um, it's often an offshoot of fire, hurricane, tornado. Um, so if you have a larger event, you're probably also dealing with flooding. Uh, can be also what we term in DDAT as a local disaster, which would be a burst pipe that sprays water all over your collections in your museum location or vital records in your uh, state-level agency or what have you. This is a pretty ironic photo. Um, this is in the wake of Superstorm Sandy. This is the main gallery area of the National 9-11 Museum. And as the caption states, you'll notice that in the lower right-hand corner of the image, there is a, a long uh, rectangular-shaped white object that is barely showing above the waterline, and that is the top of a shrink-wrapped fire truck. So they're dealing with quite a bit of flooding there. Um, some of you may be in earthquake zones. Uh, while this image is not here in the US, it's pretty typical of the type of damage that can occur in your facilities as a result of an earthquake. Fire situation, um, fortunately in this case the damage was not terribly horrible, um, but still a lot of cleanup involved, a lot of assessment of collection spaces and so forth. Offsite storage space, not something that necessarily we often consider when uh, updating or revising or even beginning our disaster plans, but this was particularly unfortunate because these offsite storage facilities that obviously are cared for by other people and 
perhaps occasionally checked on by the staff at the museum or what have you, um, actually contained very rare artifacts and objects from the original filming of the Gone with the Wind film. So great loss there. And fire damage to a roundhouse uh, at the Ejecta Railway Museum in France, but could have been here in the US. I know uh, being in Delaware, we're familiar and aware of the people on the, on the East Coast. And there's a B&O Railroad Museum that some of you may be familiar with in the Baltimore area. And they suffered a major roof collapse a few years back during, uh, during a major winter storm. So uh, this could have been them. So, you know, the idea is if you were facing any of these scenarios at your facility, in your organization, would you have enough boots on the ground with just your staff to address the situation? Would you have the expertise? Perhaps not. And a network can provide you with that added level of resources. So in our case, for the Delaware Disaster Assistance Team, the DDAT member institutions offer collective strength. So again, that idea that if something occurs at my facility, I know I've got other folks that I can call on to come in and lend a hand. And I know not only that they can lend a hand, but because they are DDAT member institutions, I know their level of training, their level of expertise, and I can feel comfortable enabling them to come in and assist in my facilities. Collective knowledge. So again, sharing that training piece. Um, we were very fortunate in that 40 people representing our member institutions went through community emergency response team training two summers ago. So we have an active CERT team that is like no other in the state of Delaware. Um, if you're familiar with community emergency response teams or CERT teams, um, the concept is that typically it's a group of people within a community, within a neighborhood. They have some connection or bond originally that brings them together so that they become trained as a unit. And then if a disaster strikes, they can be the first first responders ahead of fire, police, EMS, who may take two to three days or longer to get into the affected areas. So they can do some, some basic level of triage to minimize the impact of the event on the community that they're part of. We're a little unique because we are statewide, so we're in, we are able to respond in any community that our member representatives are part of. Uh, so we almost help our state-level emergency managers out in two ways because we can help our organizations, but we can also help our communities. So it's kind of a, a great experience. So we have that collective knowledge that we share. Collective ideas. You've heard over and over again that quote, it's, you're probably getting really tired of hearing it, but the sum really is greater than its parts. And these networks are truly no exception. They are a great example of that, that the network creates an entity that is far stronger, better, 
more diverse, more creative in response than any one institution can be on their own. And collective support, of course. So when one organization is struggling with revising their disaster plans, they're not going it alone. They can contact other member institutions and say, well, you know, you guys have this in your collection, and so do we, and we're really struggling with how to write that into the disaster plan. What did you guys do? How did you handle that? So you can kind of pick their brains. So my advice for starting a new disaster network, number one, clearly defined purpose. You want to be sure that everyone that's a part of the network understands what you're all about. And I think disaster networks can serve a variety of purposes. There are networks that can deal only with response. So they exist only to be on call when something should occur. That's it. Otherwise, they're totally independent of one another. There are other networks that focus on mitigation and preparedness, the two first steps of the cycle, if you will. Um, and DDAT is, at this point, much more that type of organization where we have focused very heavily in our 10-ish year history on training, education, providing resources, minimizing potential impact on disaster situations, those, those steps. We're moving toward response and recovery, but we're not there yet. And we've done that rather intentionally because we wanted to build a strong base to begin with, that base of knowledge, that base of understanding, the base of preparedness. And once we know that that's in place, we can move on to response and recovery. Raise awareness and get buy-in. I can almost guarantee you that you will not develop a successful network unless you've got people on board with the concept that their collections, their organization, their community, what have you, is at risk. So one of the first conversations you need to have right up front is what are, what are our risks? You may be very fortunate in that you live in an area that is isolated from potential tornadoes, hurricanes, flooding, and you know all you're dealing with is an, a, an occasional blizzard or something like that. Um, good for you. <laughs> you're very lucky. But you need to be aware of what you might be dealing with realistically in your areas. Look at the GIS maps um, and the uh, U.S. Geological Survey maps that can give you ideas of, of what typically occurs in your region. Be aware of your risks. And then you can start to put your plans together, start to put your, your training programs together and so forth. Because there's no point in training for something that realistically has minimal potential for occurring in your area. But if you've got a bunch of people that say, it's never going to happen here, or, oh, we've never been flooded, we're never going to get a flood, you're fighting an uphill battle right from the start. You've got to get them on board with the risk first. Leverage existing networks, and I put in parentheses other types, and what I'm 
referring to there is um, networks such as AASLH, networks that are professional, networks that deal with your subject area, networks that are in your region, outside your region, multiple states, and so forth, to start connecting with people. Because the one common thread in this whole scenario is that we're all facing some sort of risks. Some of us, fortunately, it's very low and not diverse. Others have to deal with all kinds of possible scenarios, and Lee Ray is going to address that a little bit. Um, but we're all dealing with a certain level of risk. And so regardless of what existing network you're tapping into, I can guarantee you that everybody else in that network is dealing with some sort of risk whether they know it or not. Don't reinvent the wheel. Um, Diani, I am so excited to hear that you guys are planning to share your curricula and your notes and all that kind of stuff. Um, we're all in this together. We're not trying to compete with one another to find out who is best at developing a disaster plan or who has come up with the, the most wonderful solution for um, dealing with a tornado and they're going to keep it to themselves now. It doesn't work like that. We're going to be sharing. So tap into the existing networks that are out there. Um, pick their brains as well. That's the last note. Don't reinvent that wheel. Leverage what's already out there. Diani touched briefly on the idea that it's so important to connect with your emergency managers. So a network is only good to a certain level in and of itself, right? Um, I mean, you certainly have accomplished a lot by establishing a network, by developing training and, and implementing training and getting everybody up, up and running. Um, so the scenario comes on and you've got this group of people who can respond. But you're going to be a much more effective network if you develop an interface with the existing emergency management structure. So ways to accomplish that, number one, facility tours. Offer them free passes. Believe it or not, the people that you're dealing with, the emergency managers, the police officers, the fire officials, the EMS personnel, they're all human beings. A lot of them have families. A lot of them have kids. A lot of them actually have outside interests beyond what they do for a living. And they may find your museum, your organization absolutely fascinating. Invite them in. They, they want to be a part of this. But we have to meet them at a certain level. And I can guarantee you they're not going to come knocking on your door. They've got plenty of other things to do. But if you issue an invitation, they might just show up. Tabletop exercise planning. So in kind of the more generic sense, leverage their expertise and utilize that when you're doing your planning, when you're doing your training. So how many of you have actually implemented a tabletop exercise? Anybody? Okay. How many of you know what a tabletop exercise is? You're not familiar with that term? Okay, great. We've got three people that are 
three or four people that are familiar with that term. So a tabletop exercise is a simulation, in a sense, of a real-life scenario. So I come into your organization, you get your key staff to sit down at a table, and I present you with a scenario, okay? You got gallery space on the third floor. It's where you keep your vital office records and your um, collection of antique furniture. And a major pipe has burst on that floor. You have visitors down on the lower level who are about to enter that gallery, and you've got a meeting of your board of directors that's going on in the conference room in the back hall. What do you do? What's the first thing that you do? So that's kind of a, an example of, of a tabletop scenario. And it gets us to start thinking about how we would manage a situation without actually being faced with it. Um, studies have shown that people who practice a behavior tend to be more successful in implementing the behavior if and when the scenario actually occurs. So that's kind of the idea here with the tabletop, um, is you want to walk through it when you are not totally stressed out, when the scenario is not actually occurring and you're going, oh my gosh, what do we do, what do we do? You want to be more effective in your response than that. So the idea is to engage the local emergency management folks um, and, and leverage their knowledge and their expertise. And that kind of ties into the, the other pieces, meet them more than halfway and share a culture, common understandings and common knowledge. That's a great example right there with the tabletop exercise. Only three or four people raised their hands to say, yes, I've heard of a tabletop exercise or, or I've implemented one. If you don't speak their language, you're not going to have success. So Diani alluded to that as well, that um, sometimes you need to go, go through a translation process and understand things like MOUs, Memorandums of Understanding, um, EOCs, Emergency Operations Centers. Become familiar with their world and their jargon, and it will help you interface with them better. And I can almost guarantee that if you make that effort, they're going to respect you a whole lot more because they're, they're going to see that you have shown you really are serious about this effort, okay? Um, and I know we're all overstretched. We are doing far too many jobs these days, and we don't need yet one more piece to throw into that pot. But it really is worth the time and effort to make that happen. And last but not least, food. Everybody loves to eat. Bring them in for a pizza party and show them your space. Take some, a, a plate of brownies to the local fire department. Introduce yourself. You will become their instant friend. That's all I have, and I will be happy to entertain questions at the end of our conversation. Lee Ray. Thank you. Yes, to everything we've heard. <laughs> so... Is anyone here a member of a network already? Okay, we got work to do. Um, how many of you have been trained in disaster recovery techniques? Be proud. You've been trained. You've been exposed. Okay. 
That's a start. We'll be happy with that. We'll take what we can get when we can get it, where we can get it. So, disaster planning. I live in North Carolina. Hurricanes, yeah. This is not the time to be planning. This is not the time to be developing network. Just saying, okay? <laughs> but uh, I am the director of the Crest Project, and you're going to hear more about the Crest Project through this discussion. And I wanted to give you just a little bit about the background for North Carolina because we have been doing what we've heard about here for 15 years in North Carolina. And um, I have evolved into the recovery operations. We still preach, write your disaster plan, train your folks and all of those things, but we've evolved into a statewide disaster response network of trained professionals. So, wrong direction. I'm technologically disinclined at times. So we have about 950 cultural heritage institutions across North Carolina. Mountains to the Sea takes about six or seven hours to get from the Outer Banks to the mountains, and that's with good traffic. We have about 236 library special collections, 31 archives, 458 museums. Most of those are historic house museums, and most of those have no paid staff with a budget of less than $50,000. So that tells you disaster preparedness is not on their top of things to do. So how do we help them? We have five Boy Scout museums, 14 jailhouse museums, five taxidermy museums. 11 fire station museums. That's Fred the fire horse there. We like Fred. Five Harley-Davidson museums. Who knew, right? 16 military archives and museums. There are at least 34 depots that have been turned into museums. At least. It seems like I go through these little towns and, oh, there's another one. <laughs> so when do you develop a network at these places? North Carolina is a big state. Um, hint, not in the middle of the disaster, as I said. However, two of the images here represent institutions that generated networks. And those networks came together from a grassroots effort to help those institutions recover at the time and after the disaster that they saw. On your bottom left is the Thomas Wolfe fire. That is a historic house in one of our um, institution members where the Department of Cultural Resources, we have 27 state historic sites, and the Wolf House was one of our sites. It was arson. Then uh, the big courthouse building you see in the picture, that building was undergoing renovation. There was a spark in the attic, and there you have it. So we deal, we scare people. We will scare you. You know, you can't plan for arson, but you need to be ready for the recovery after the arson. The Wolf House, by the way, is a win because this happened 15 years ago at the beginning of everybody saying you need to get ready. And the people at the Wolf House had already gotten ahead of the curve and developed a good relationship with their first responders. And the firefighters, when they arrived at the scene, the house was so far engaged that had it been a private home or a business, they would have let it burn because it was too dangerous to let their staff in, the firefighters go in to stop the fire. But because they knew it was the Thomas Wolf House, because they knew it was an icon for the community, they went in and stopped the fire and saved the majority of the house. So building that relationship with the first responders sometimes is very, very, very important. Oh, wrong direction again. So our challenges for developing networks in North Carolina is you get them individually repair, prepared. We had the same stats on how many institutions did and didn't have repair, um, plans. And 
then we have to get them to cooperate because the museum over there on the other side of town may not play well with the museum on this side of town. And that historic sites folks don't like that historic sites folks. So getting them to come together and play well sometimes is, is very tough. And then we have to keep them motivated. Some of the same issues that we've heard from the other two panelists. And um, so we came up with Akron's. And this is when we start throwing an alphabet soup at you. So Akron stands for Area Cultural Response, Emergency Response Network. So we have MACRN, the Mountain Area Cultural Resources Emergency Network. And that started in 1998 after Thomas Wolfe. And then we got TACRN, the Triangle Area Cultural Resources Emergency Response Network. And it was started in 2009, around the same time as that fire at the courthouse. And then we have PACRN, WACRN, CACRN, CHACRN, whatever you want to call it. We're going to add an acron on the end of it. So PACRN is the Piedmont area. WACRN is the uh, Wilmington area. CACRN is the coastal area. And uh, so we're trying. And it's very difficult to handhold these people into these networks. And you can see I put the dates up there for some of when they're going. And Macron's been going since 98. And they ebb and flow. And sometimes they don't meet for a year or two. And uh, unfortunately, disasters seem to make people decide that they need to be better prepared. And so <laughs> I hope for hurricanes. <laughs> And it's a bad thing to say you want a hurricane. But in North Carolina, a hurricane can just glance the coast and make everybody go, oh, I don't, I'm not ready. Uh, but they, you know, it's not a sandy experience. It's just a little bit of a wind and some rain. And they go, oh, I'm not ready. Let me get better. So I hope for the small Category 1 hurricane, the eye stays off Cape Hatteras and doesn't come ashore, but does enough to make everybody freak out. So... <laughs> You'll notice that uh, North Carolina is big. We have uh, 15 emergency management divisions across the state, and we try to work with our emergency managers. You talk about a bureaucratic headache. Three counties. I am so jealous. <laughs> Three counties. We have 100 counties. So we have 100 emergency managers, 16 different regional whatevers, and then we have the state emergency management plan. And Oh, it's a headache. It's just a headache. And so we're not above instilling fear. That's a pirate. Yesterday was talked like a pirate day. Did everybody say arg at least once? Please say yes. That's Blackbeard's flag. I'm from eastern North Carolina. He's my hero. Um, but we want you to be actually ready. We don't want to scare you into writing a plan and putting it on your shelf and not paying attention to it. So we do all that we can to keep you uh, coherent and cognizant of what's going on. One of the things we do is we channel your internal pyromaniac. We have a series of workshops that we do. We created the Burnsville Museum, and we set up with local firefighters a museum in a uh, controlled burn facility that firefighters train to be firefighters in, and it's fun to collect an artifact collection, and we catalog it, and we photograph it, we treat it just like it's any other museum, and then we burn it, and it's so fun. <laughs> But the firefighters learn what the museum people do and how to navigate in a museum and think about the artifacts in the museum. And then they watch us with gentle care and gloves and masks and aprons and all the things that we do when we do a recovery. They watch us recover those things. And then they see that this thing that was black and covered with soot can be wet again and it can get cleaned and it can go back into a museum so they are wow you can wet photographs again and then we have to say well certain photographs and this and that and the other but yes and so it's it's really a learning exercise for both our workshop participants 
and the firefighters in the community. And um, the same concept with the tabletop. If you are familiar with a hands-on recovery operation procedure, then you're more comfortable doing that in a disaster scenario. And they're working with a fictional museum with not real artifacts. So when it comes to your personal collection and your personal artifacts and your museum, you're less likely to go, oh, this poor vase or whatever. So it's, it's useful. Now, I always recommend uh, the heritage preservation tools. And we have propaganda here for heritage preservation with the uh, emergency response wheel and app and the Alliance for Response program and all the other good tools that heritage preservation has made available. So is this sustainable? If you give them fish, are they going to recover from a fish kill? <laughs> are they going to help each other, you know? Um, so I've seen varying degrees of success. And one thing about a few years ago uh, made me stop and back up and regroup. And that was Hurricane Irene in 2011. And this is the top image is of Highway 12, not long after Irene. We were out there. Uh, there had been breaches in the dunes. The ocean had been where our car was driving at that point, And it was threatening to break the dunes again because there was a nor'easter coming right afterwards. And um, so Chickamacomico Life-Saving Station, you say that three times real fast. Chickamacomico, Chickamacomico, Chickamacomico. Anyway, this is the Life-Saving Station, the picture of the station here on the bottom. I don't know if you can tell, but the grass in the foreground is kind of icky looking. It's because they had ocean overwash First, the storm passed, and then they had um, flooding from the sound on the other side, and then a sewage system backed up into those floodwaters, and we were walking in muck. Um, so that was fun. But um, so, Chickamacomico, there was no Akron, there was no regional response team, there was no disaster plan, there was no recovery plan, there was no budget, there was no trained staff, there was lots of damage. And who are you going to call, right? They, there was no there was nobody for them to call. Um, I called them and said, do you need some help? And they said, oh, Lord, yes, please. And so I said, okay. And so I got a crew of folks, and we went and we helped them. But it clicked with me that many of these places are not as much as we preach, and I'm going to be able to wet blanket as much as we preach, as much as we network, there's still going to be these little guys who don't get ready. And somebody, we have an obligation to the stuff, if not to the staff, to the stuff to help them. So that meant I created Crest. And it's like, here we come to save the day. So Crest is a solution for perpetual readiness and a cultivation of regional teams. And I developed this through an inter, uh, IMLS grant. And so what we have are team members who are conservators, who are collections managers, who are uh, registrars, who are... Uh, folks trained in handling stuff and curators and they all come together we subject them to a good deal of training everything from the the cert training to think about personal safety through to um, best practices for cleaning artifacts and uh, packaging artifacts and drying out books and things like that so this is us in action we've been activated a handful of times now uh, the photo on the top right was uh, during the polar vortex and North Carolina, you think hurricanes and stuff like that, but not 20 below for extended periods of time. We don't build for that. 
And so we had many instances where we had failures of structures and pipe systems, and we had flooded situations. So our team, the way our team works is we have team members at all these stars across the state. And if some call comes into me at the main area in Raleigh, I can say, okay, you are in Asheville, and I have team members in Asheville. It's right there for them to respond, and I get one of my Asheville folks to go to the institution that's affected. This is local disasters now, individual institutions, and they look at it and go, okay, this is what happened, and they report back to me because I'm sort of like the incident commander, if you think about the ICS FEMA system, and they let me know okay, they had a pipe burst, they've got three levels of stacks of books wet, and they have a crew of volunteers, and I have a set of supplies that I can let them use to recover. I don't need the whole team activated. Or they can say, yeah, this is pretty strong business. They don't have a whole lot of volunteers, and I need about four more trained volunteers to come from Crest. And so I can get people to come and help. So their job descriptions for Crest team members are they incorporate Crest into their work plan. So that means they get buy-in from their supervisors to leave their job site and go and help with recovery. They complete required training, like the CERT team. They are ready to respond as a regional first responder and as a support from a different region should something happen. And they're a catalyst for that regional readiness. If I can have these guys in these different parts of the state encouraged and keep those regional networks going, then that's the way I do it, you know. So it's, it's a multifaceted approach to readiness across the state. All disasters start and end local, so I try to get the local po people to understand what's going on locally, and then there's a, net, a statewide network to help them, too. So, you know, I love Frozen. <laughs> Yay, winter snow, polar vortex. What are we going to have next? Are we going to have another winter like we did? So we've already started thinking about preparations for wintertime and talking to our constituents across the state about thinking about your winter plans, your facilities. And to break the cycle, you've got to do the training and revisit your plans and networks continuously. And I was watching the news with Lynn this morning in the bedroom getting ready to come. And they're having a disaster scenario training here in the city somewhere for local emergency responders. And it's at a train depot, and there's a chlorine gas leak at one of the tankers. And we were just listening because, you know, we knew what we were talking about. And the reporter was asking, so what are you going to do today? And he said, we're going to review our plan and see if it will survive contact with reality. I was like, oh, I got to put that in my stuff. So there it is. Make sure your plan survives contact with reality. Testing what you're doing with either your regional network or your individual site is very, very important. So that's done, and we can talk now. <laughs> Didn't you like that term? Yeah. Survive yeah, contact with. <laughs> microphone yeah, yeah. um, So we have almost 20 minutes for questions and discussion, which is good. Um, I just wanted to mention before we get into that, um, Lee Ray mentioned it briefly, and Pat alluded a lot to things like this, but um, one really great tool to get yourself thinking and talking like emergency management agents is um, the incident command system, ICS. Um, it was, there's, it's, it was developed um, in the 70s 
in response to wildfires in California when there were all these different agencies, FEMA, state agencies, local first responders involved, and they, they were not speaking the same language as each other. And so out of that, FEMA developed this, this initiative, um, the Incident Command System. And um, you can go on the FEMA website and you can actually take training online. It's it's free. It takes, I think, about two hours if you do it all at once and learn the, the structure and setup of the whole system. Um, it's not terribly complex once you learn it, but before you go through the training or at least familiarize yourself with it, it really does seem kind of like a soup of acronyms. And there's also a really good book by David Carmichael called do you remember the t exact title? It's something about using the incident command system with libraries, archives, and museums. Um, but David Carmichael, I think it came out in 2010. It's pretty new. So you can get it through Heritage Preservation's website. So all right, any questions for any of the speakers? Please. Yes. We are. How much training does it take to uh, make a, a small museum staff competent to uh, respond to a disaster? And what, uh, when do we know when we need, or when do we know when we're in over our heads? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. We're the first responders, so I guess I'll have to answer that. Um, any degree of training is better than none. So um, writing your plan is a first step for training your staff, and that makes you think through what is, and a lot of people hate to do this, but what is the one, two, or three artifacts that make your institution what it is? If those were to get burned up, would you still be able to function? And so identifying priorities in your collection if, should you have a short salvage time is a very important thing. And people hate doing that, but you got to. Um, and then um, getting at least, as, as Pat said, every disaster seems to end with water. Fires end with water, tornadoes end with water, floods are water. So um, getting some experience with dealing with wet collections will help you in many ways. Uh, if you're building experiences of fire, and unfortunately we have had four arsons in North Carolina at historic sites. So um, it, you're not gonna have access to your collections that have been either burned or sooted up or smoked up or any, or wet for a you know, good period of time. So dealing with wet collections is the best thing. And you really need to think about how you're gonna Remove the items from a damaged area. Where are you going to store those items? How are you going to store them? Do you have access to freezer facilities? All those things that you think through in the disaster plan helps you get better prepared. So doing basics. And Lynn here, I, she, I didn't introduce her earlier, I'm sorry. She's my disaster preparedness coordinator for our project. And she came to me not from the museum world, but from emergency management. So she talks about, she uses a different approach. I'm thinking, oh, the artifacts. And she's thinking, oh, don't step in that. There might be electricity in that water. So we talk in many different ways about what you need to do to be prepared. So at least a little bit, if not everything. But to be specific to your answer, 
we have developed a series of workshops and a one-day training can go a long way. And we spend half the day learning the ICS structure and talking about, talking with your fireman, blah, blah, blah. Then we do actual recovery uh, where we set up and we give people the hands-on experience. And this is where I've learned so much about what are you going to do And Lorray soaks books in water and covers them in mud and messes up um, old photo, uh, uh, photographs. But there's the answer to your question is a one-day training with a group of um, librarians or historians or whatever can go a very long way in helping them feel prepared. Oh, now I know about wrapping a book in wax paper and getting it in the freezer. And in those burns, the burn museums that we do, the Burnsville, we implement the ICS structure and our CREST team members have those roles that are identified in ICS. They're the logistics planner, the coordination planner. And then we make them prioritize. Have you got the triage tags? We use the same format that emergency responders use for the triage tags. So you, the, the fire marshal says, and say that would be me, I'm the instant commander and I play a double role. You got 30 minutes to get everything out of that building. We're locking it down because it's contaminated by sewage, blah, blah, blah. And you sweet little archivists and all are like, oh my goodness, I've got to document and I've got to get the accession number and I've got to do this and I'm like, you got to get it out. And when you get it out, you've got to identify the level of um, damage. Is it gone? Is it salvageable in this? And we have them do those quick thinking decisions that have to be made in a disaster. And we incorporate that in our one-day training. We try to go back and follow up and say, now, we're, now you see why you need a disaster plan? I will come and help you with that. The flip side of that is when we first went to emergency management, the first thing we said, and this is really important, we do not want any of your personnel and we do not want any of your money. We only want to be your partner. And they were like, oh, well, okay, come on. And just if I can uh, maybe briefly address the last bit of your question, which I think is really truly important. How do you know when you're in over your head? The training that they've described goes a long way to helping your staff, volunteers or paid or whatever, it doesn't matter. They've got the knowledge. If they go through this training, then they can do that quick evaluation. And you know, I'm going to set all this stuff aside, and that's all going to go to my local conservation organization. They're going to do the freeze drying. They're going to handle all that stuff because we don't have the capability to do that. So the two key pieces in knowing when you're over, in over your head, I think, are going through the training so you can recognize the signs of what's, what you can handle and what you can't, and then having your resources identified and lined up ahead of time, not when the hurricane's on the coast, but well in advance so that you've got those numbers and you know that you've got that support network there that you can contact them and say, come on in and get my stuff. It's all yours. You deal with it. Um, you know, just I know from our perspective at DDAT, our organizations say knowing that they've got 
those resources standing behind them, those professional companies that will come in and do freeze drying and will do all those things, they, that's a huge peace of mind when you're facing an event. So I think those two pieces are, are really critical. Or merely a mutual agreement with the local food line or just a mutual agreement with your local community, the Piggly Wiggly or the food line or whatever, should we have a disaster and you've got electricity, can I store my stuff in your site? And they go, yes. So my question is, if you have problems with buy-in from the bigger institutions, how have you dealt with that? We've reached this point in my state where some of the larger institutions have expressed that they feel like they're always being asked to do something. And they've gotten to this point where they're kind of like, we're, we're done. How have you encountered that and how do you get them past that? Because I feel like this kind of thing would benefit them too. Because even though they're larger and have lots of resources, if they have a disaster, they're going to need some more bodies to help. But, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And uh, in DDAT, for example, in Delaware, we have um, our, our smallest member institution, I, I think I would say, is a local historical society that's all volunteer, very small, um, definitely community-based. And our largest would probably be the Winterthur Museum um, that many of you are familiar with. And uh, fortunately, we didn't get that pushback from Winterthur, but I, I've heard that before. And they do feel like we have to carry everybody else on our backs. So I think one of the key elements is identifying those benefits for those organizations and calling that to their attention. Um, and I think they can benefit from the creative thinking that goes on in a, in a network environment just as much as the small volunteer-driven historical society can. You know, taking a look at what your network has to offer and then pointing out the benefits to the larger players, if you will, um, in that network. But it is a challenge, um, and I think you just have to establish that give and take from the get-go that there is something that the little folks bring to the table as well. Um, but maybe you guys can speak to that also. Right. I, I think showing the big guys that the little guys are trying and that you have a disaster plan, you have some training, you have a response kit of supplies, that you just need some of their expertise, that perhaps, I mean, that building that outwork and then demonstrating your willingness to not just go, can you help? But I'm here and eager and ready to help, but I need more assistance, that sort of thing. And working with them and getting to know each other sitting face-to-face -face as equals at a table eating lunch that builds those relationships that you don't need to be building in the midst of the recovery. Maybe this is kind of a cynical take on, <laughs> on answering that question, but and it's kind of a different take too, but I would, I would just say that that's even more of a reason why these networks are so important for, for the little guys, because they have to share resources. I mean, even just tangible resources like a wet dry vac, like 
one institution might have one and four others might not. And so um, that doesn't at all address how you're going to make it more compelling for the big guys, but it, it is kind of a, um, a critical point for getting engagement from the little guys. Yeah, and, and not to put it too bluntly, but you play with or without the big guys. I mean, that's that's the bottom line, and and maybe you have to do that. Um, but I think one other possibility is we have one member institution that, believe it or not, is a for-profit company, and they came to us seeking assistance to develop their disaster plan for their archival collections. And we never would have thought to approach them to invite them to be a member, and they're one of our better members now. And what they bring to the table, fortunately, is bucks. So when I told them that our annual membership fee for institutions, for the institution itself, not individual members, is $50, they laughed in my face. And they said, you've got to be kidding. That's like... I'll give you my lunch money, you know. Um, so they have since offered to financially support various training programs and so forth, and we, it was awesome that they came on board with us. We never would have approached them. So you play with whoever's going to be willing to play. Do you think that the... Uh, the, the avenue forward for regions of the country that don't have networks in place is through the uh, state associations, or should we uh, impose upon AASLH and other national organizations to, to do some of this training and perhaps provide it at conferences? Well, <laughs> hey, we will burn some barrels in Louisville. <laughs> hey, bingo. We could bring Adrian and do the whole Friends with the person from Louisville at the fire department, fire marshal. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never know. Something might happen. But <laughs> For North Carolina and in Delaware and in Pennsylvania, our catalyst was the Institute of Museum and Library Services doing the Connecting to Collections initiative. And those were geared at statewide bodies who could assist across their states. And what state are you from? Uh, you're from right here. We're in Minnesota. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's been a long week. I would get in touch with the folks of the Minnesota Historical Society, and they would be the best equipped to drive a something inside the state. Is there a regional or a state um, museums association? Yes. Are you from there? Minnesota Alliance of Local History Museums. Um, 
you need to meet with him and then you need to go find David Grabitsky from the Minnesota Historical Society and y'all need to have a confab and say, what can we do to get Minnesota better prepared? And the Midwest Art Conservation Center as well would be, definitely should be involved in that conversation. There is also for those organizations that are governmental, there is a training facility in Anniston, Alabama that trains responders and government officials to respond to disasters. They teach the ICS system um, and it's free. All you have to do is go through your local, um, there, there is, a, if you go to the website is cdp.dhs.gov, um, they have a list of your state representative. That's the person who will approve or disapprove you to go down, and they take care of everything. So unfortunately, we're out of time, and I think we all have planes to catch. Um, I would be more than happy, and I'm sure that Lee Ray and Pat would as well, to um, give you our emails. I mean, I have cards. And, we all have cards, so um, come up and find us quickly if you'd like our contact info. Thank you all so much for sticking around. Please fill out the yellow evaluations, and um, you can either leave them by the door or give them to this lovely woman with the microphone. And, um, yeah, thanks. Enjoy the rest of your time here, or safe travels home. for taking the time to be here. I, you know, well, and, and like Deani said at the beginning, you know, just the fact that you're here, obviously you already get that this is important. So now it's, you know, okay, yeah. I worry about climate change and environmental change. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs>